Hey, all right, welcome to Life of the Drop podcast. My name is Aaron, here with my good friend, Ben. Good morning. It's been a long time. It has. So we got a lot to talk about. Uh, life of the Drop is a podcast about substance abuse and addiction. If you have somebody in your life that is going through that, or you yourself are going through that, uh, we just want to let you know that, hey, there's light at the end of the tunnel. There is help. It's not friggin' easy by any means, uh, but there are uh, opportunities for you to get the help that you actually need. So hopefully you'll find something from this that'll encourage you, give you hope, or at least help you to, to stay in there. So a lot to talk about. <clears throat> okay, before we get into it, uh, I know uh, a lot has changed around here. So I, we haven't, I don't think we've sat down since maybe, I want to say maybe March, February. It's been, it's been so long. It's, uh, yeah, I went on a a redecorating outside tour. You did. And I had this in mind because I was I was thinking, what's the best way we can, you know, kind of set up our little system so I have, you know, AstroTurf in my lanai. Which is really comfortable, I want to say. Yeah, I bought the I bought the thick one. It's nice. <laughs> the thick it's one. soft. You know, you, sometimes you can get like the prickly stuff. This is like, I could live just in this space right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my girlfriend, I said, anytime, you know, you, you're in town, you know, because we, we, we're not going to sleep yeah, yeah. together yet. We're not married, yeah, right? Yeah. So I said, you could sleep out here. <laughs> you could pitch a tent. There we go. It's awesome. Yeah, and I do have a tent, you know. I said, and it's not that it's not that I want you to be. No, I said, I'll sleep out here, you know. So you can camp out here. You can cruise out here. It's beautiful. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> but oh, yeah, good. it just changes, you know, changes. New settings, <laughs> new feelings. Kind of a new time. Yeah? Yeah. It's good. I missed you, though. I missed you, too. You look wonderful. I mean, we, we, we've seen each other a few times, but yeah, not at the beach much. or whatnot. Yeah. No, but this is good. <clears throat> I lo- I'm losing weight again. Are you? Yeah. Well, you, you always look good, though. Well, so. I mean, I was looking like um, Jabba the Hutt. You no. know where you're... <laughs> You know where the, the, the smallest part of your body is your head? <laughs> no. And then it goes out oh, like that? No, because no, my neck was getting wider than my head. Oh, my God. And then I said, that's, oh, I got to lose some weight. So, oh, man. That's been nice. And, uh, yeah, just enjoying enjoying things. That's good. Mm-hmm. You uh, you went on a road trip. Wow. You got to go to Nashville, right? I did. I did. Yeah, and, I went to Nashville. Now, and we'll, okay, so we for, for, the, for those of you who are listening, we'll get into the nitty-gritty here. But Ben and I are going to do a little bit of catch-up. I think. So, okay, so you went to Nashville. Had you ever been to Nashville before? Or was this your first trip? Did we talk about this yet? We haven't talked about it. small kind, just a little bit. Yeah, first trip, Nashville, Tennessee. So I saw this documentary about songwriters, right? Mm. And it says it's all about the song. That's what it was called. And these guys are, you know, writing songs. At the beginning, it says stuff like, you know, I, I I was right about to go home, and then my dad said, don't come home. You're not allowed to come home. And the next day I wrote, don't stop believing. Oh, <laughs> or something like gosh. that, right? Right. Come Same on. thing, like, yeah. And so all these songwriters, you know, I, I saw that and then I caught the buzz and I said, I got to go and see this thing. And I went there and it was the best live music scene I've ever. Oh my gosh, I'm so jealous. I've ever been to in my life. And, and like, okay, and, and just so people know, like, you've been to New York. I mean, you've been around. You've been I, in some different areas where there's good live yeah, music. Yeah, or so. even, you know, like, London has a oh, good live music street on. busking scene yeah. and stuff. But, but Nashville, Tennessee, I mean, it's a different quality. Right. They're not, they're not um, street buskers. Right. They're professional right. level singers. Man. So singing, the singing is what was amazing. Really? I saw this guy in a, we heard it, we we're outside the Ryman Theater. I'm not joking, this is a real story. Okay. We're standing outside the Ryman Theater, they have a nice kind of a, a mall, 
across the street, a cop's standing right there just listening to this song. And I walk up to him, I said, is that, is that live? I didn't know where it was coming. Right. He said, yeah. I said, who is it? He's all right upstairs. So I go upstairs and there's like a beer garden place or whatever. And the cop was, uh, I said, why are you, you know, like, why are you signing? He said, yeah, this guy's real good. I always stand out here when this guy's no. like, yes. Oh, so I go upstairs on. and the guy's as good as I've ever heard somebody. And this is a story of natural. Every place you go, it's, it's world-class. Man. It's got to so just hearing that, it's got to be hard to get a break in Nashville because everybody's so good. Yeah, that's the thing is you can't make it in country music unless you go to Nashville. Right. When you get to Nashville, you have to go up against every single person that's come to Nashville to make it. The people, that's why the quality of country music is off the charts. Right. The songwriting is sometimes cliche, but you, right. you have people that break through. Yeah, yeah. But the singing, every single person can sing. I was there, like, walking around the city at 10 a.m., and they had people on stages. See, that's amazing. Yeah. I got to go to Nashville. I don't think I'll be able to get Kareen to go to Nashville. She'll be afraid that I'll walk out with some cowboy boots and a hat, which I will, absolutely. But I think she would enjoy the quality, because she's a good singer, so I think that she, she would, would love the music. She would enjoy that, I think. Yeah, she would. And one thing, too, is they had these um, guitar stores that, uh, they there's nothing that parallels them. I'm, you know, I mean, L.A., Root... They have, a, I think it's called um, in LA, Norm's Rare Guitars. Okay. New York City Soho has Rudy's. Yeah. If you go to Nashville, I think they have something called Carter's. Okay. Carter's Vintage. It's, there's not too many of these places. Right. All these guys trade and buy and sell all these vintage guitars uh. there. So I walked into a room and there was a row of them. I mean, there was 200 guitars in this rare guitar room. And there were like four or five magic guitars that oh. if if I had the means, right? Like how much are we talking? Like, I was playing guitars that were twenty thousand oh. dollars, a nineteen forty something D eighteen. Oh, you know, on. yeah, it was crazy. It's talk about addiction, right? Ooh. We've talked about guitars, <laughs> and now <laughs> like it's healthy the thing. addiction. Healthy right? addiction, yeah, <laughs> and because um, they hold their value, mm -hmm. and some of them appreciate. Yes. But yeah, it was a super fun trip. Dude. No, that's I, amazing. I, I'm jealous. I encourage everyone who's a musician. Like I told my friend Daniel, and he already went there with his wife. It was like yeah. I'm like an evangelist <laughs> preaching the gospel. <laughs> I was like, you got to go. I mean, especially you, you know? Oh, really, man. I got You go. have not been? No. Oh, not even close. I figure you would have been. Not even close. Yeah, it's crazy, dude. You I've, I've been it. to a lot of the states on the main line. I've traveled uh, a bit around, but I've never made it. Um, never made it down to Nashville. Like the the places that you, like you should be going for these things. I just I never had a, a reason. Yeah. And you don't need a reason. It's Nashville. That's the reason you go. Like I want to go to Nashville. I want to go to Austin, Texas. Oh, music like cities. Just these big music cities mm -hmm. too. And when I was in London, I was sixteen. I didn't care about anything. Sure. You know, except the fact that I could go into bars and drink at 16. <laughs> at 16 that was really, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that was really, oh. Yeah, London for me, from what I remember, was was pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, it was nuts. But I didn't get to appreciate all these things. I just wasn't at that place in life, like, where we would be now. Right. Where you can actually appreciate right. stuff. Uh, one quick story. We were in this, on. it's called Broadway. Mm. There's bars up and down the sides, and they're just stages right some of them are three stories with three stages some of them are five stories of five stages Man. so you walk in at the bottom and every single one of them at 
in the night, um, whoever makes a night stage is really good. Right. So they're saying, you should go to this place called the Whiskey Row. And um, the Whiskey Row is kind of like the top bar there. So we go in. It is, I'm telling you, it's a three-piece band with a female singer. And they're singing um, uh, Heart Alone. Uh, and I'm telling you, the girl was like, you she know. rocking it? Or oh, right? the, the way that they interact with the audience, because they do this every night. Right. Is so they're just hilarious. They're good. The drummer's just a pro. Right. You know they're studio guys. Yeah. And uh, she when she hits that high note, yeah, down there. <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, it's like everyone is standing there just in awe like, that this is not how how are you not famous? Right. And I was literally getting goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps <laughs> right now just from that. She's like, you know, and we're. I was looking. I was just going. You know, there's there's something about this. Is it's something sad about this? Because she's so good, right. man. Yeah. But oh, if you were a live music fan, it, it is the mecca. That's the place to it's go. It's the mecca. That's yeah. the place. Thanks for sharing that, man. Now I just I really well, feel homesick you. for Nashville. I've never been there. Well, yeah, you of all people should be ashamed of yourself. I should. Mm -hmm. I should. Yeah. I am ashamed of myself. Yeah, and so am I. I'm ashamed of myself. <laughs> you're gonna say you're ashamed of me. I was, and then oh, I corrected man. because I'm not ashamed of you. I'm ashamed well, of. You. I really am ashamed of myself. Oh, stop it now. Okay. Yeah, it's so fun to get away though, you know. And one thing I noticed though is how the world is back to normal. Right. It's back. So right. when I went to the mainland, it's different than it is here. So if there's people listening on the mainland, it's open. It's getting back to normal in California. Today is no no restrictions. Right. Honolulu is still like. The Walking Dead. Yeah. Well, yeah, we're we're uh, we're behind the mainland. I think in everything, we're behind the curve. Like the things that kind of wash across the mainland U.S. eventually get here. Right. Bell bottoms just yeah, got yeah, here. Yeah. We're just we're in just the bell bottom phase. So you know, um, hey, anything but the skinny jeans. Okay. Right. Which technically, bell bottoms are kind of skinny jeans with just big <laughs> bottoms. So that's a whole other thing. Anyways. Um, yeah, no, that's good. I think one thing that stood out to me, I think, is interesting is this. As we get into talking about addiction mm -hmm. and, and things like that, is um, a lot of these things that, that you and I enjoy, mm -hmm. like the music scene, all this stuff, you mm -hmm. end up in places where people are drinking or you have access to This drinking, is a good right? point, yeah. I, when I and, said whiskey row, I uh, said, oh, my God. Yeah, no, that's fine. Because it, it. And here's the thing. You know, one thing that I learned from AA is that, you know, it's an old school term. We're not teetotalers. We're not saying that alcohol is bad. It's we're understanding as addicts or alcoholics that I just can't partake in that. I'm not going to judge anybody else who is. That's, you know, the whole, uh, I think, philosophy of, hey, I'm keeping my side of the street clean. You're going to do what you're going to do. I can't control you, what you do. I can be concerned. And if, again, if you have somebody who's struggling with this, yeah, you should be concerned. Um, and if you are, if you are concerned about somebody you need to sit down and talk to them, whether or not they're going to listen or not. Uh, and it, because, you know, the end of that road, uh, as it says in the big book, is jails, institutions, or death. That's where you will eventually end up. You will lose your life if, if you are going down that path of addiction. It's just, it's just a matter of time. Um, but the good part is this, is that you can get through this and you can be in those different areas. And if you, I'll just put it in AA terms because that's what's worked for me. Because I've got, you know, uh, um, you know, the rehab that I went to was a 12-step immersion program. So it really um, was a foundational in 12 steps. 
in the big book, uh, at the at the core of it, it it really is a a, a faith based and I'll say biblically based understanding of how to stay sober. Of understanding that you have to trust in your higher power, you have to trust in uh, the program and doing the steps. You have to do your work right, and I think that that mirrors our relationship with God. If we're coming from a Christian perspective, that you know, yeah, God is not Santa Claus up there. You know, He's also not distant and saying, well, you're on your own. He's like, no, I'm involved in your life, but you have to make the uh, the steps. You have to do what is set before you, knowing you're not going to do it perfectly, right? So so really, the, the uh, and yet he rescues us. And I, and I would say, you know, I have, I can't even count the number of times that my life has been spared, literally, or things that shouldn't have worked out, have worked out, that are not explainable by circumstance, by happenstance, it's the intervention of a living God. And that's, again, that's my story. It doesn't have to be anybody else's mm-hmm. story. Um, but at the core of it, it's releasing these things. And it's been interesting because I had my one of my best friends in the world, Jesse, he came uh, and visited with his family. I haven't seen him in, since 2012, I think was wow, the last time I saw him. So. so almost 10 years, right? Uh, all right, my math is, yeah, anyways. Yeah, yeah, but, almost. Yeah, well, yeah, almost, almost ten years, and um, uh, you know, and so everyone's hanging down to Waikiki, you know, and people are drinking beers, and and I'm like, I'm okay with it, and he even actually goes, oh, hey, I didn't didn't realize. I'm just like, dude, do what you got to do. I'm fine. It doesn't throw me off, uh, uh, because I know that uh, I'm responsible for my my drinking or my drugs. I, uh, well, I shouldn't be doing drugs at all, and I'm not, but you know what I'm saying. I'm responsible. Just because you said my drugs. That's the only problem with that statement. Stay away from my drugs, man. They're mine, all right? Your drugs are fine for you, but my drugs are fine for me. That's right. Oh, my gosh. Anyway. Yeah, I never understood, you know, this whole concept of peer pressure. It's just like, I never, I never, never experienced peer pressure because when it came to drugs, it's like, no, I'm going to keep all all mine for me. I'm not going to give you any. Right, right. stuff. Anyways, uh, my point is that that, that you know, it, 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 for some it's a really long road. Road for it's a lifelong road when you get into recovery, and that's great because it should be. And it's, it's difficult at times, and you go through seasons. And so one of the things that I still see my addiction counselor uh, uh, twice a month, uh, do check-ins, just be able to process stuff, and uh, you know, in she often tells me, you know, you're freaking. And she said this just the other day. She's, you are a badass in your recovery, Aaron. No way. She's she like, you're, and, and, and I don't, I'm like, I don't feel like that, though. Like, I feel like, man, why am I struggling with these different things? Why am I still tempted by this? Why, do, when I'm watching a TV show, when they're having a glass of scotch, I'm just like, my mouth at times literally waters. And I'm just like, but I understand. I go to a place not where like, okay, I'm going to plan and trying to get a drink. I remember I did enjoy that, but I realized that that first sip, is going to put me right back where I was mm. with my family hating me, my wife wanting to kill me, nobody liking me, and me messing everything up. And it's not worth it. That moment of the nostalgia, of the romanticizing what I wish my drinking would have been as a normal human being, it's it never was. It was never like that. Yep. And if it was, it was for a brief, brief, brief moment. 
Uh, and it's it's just not worth it's not worth where I know it's gonna it's gonna land me. So no Mad Men for you. Yeah, you no, don't watch Mad, <laughs> no Mad, Mad Men. Okay, good. I watch. I just got into the TV show Blue Bloods, right, with okay. Tom Selleck, and every every episode at some point they sit down and you know like all, like all cop shows, they have that bottle of of whiskey or scotch or in the drawer, and they, and they have to sit you know, and I'm just like, and I do sometimes I sit there like, I miss that, but then my brain goes, do you? And I'm like, no, I don't. I miss what I wished it could have been like if I was a normal drinker. But I can't drink normally. You know, I think I'm genetically predisposed to addiction just because of um, my genetics and my family history. Um, and the fact that, yeah, I, I, I never drank like a normal person. It was once I had a drink, I was off and running. You know, there were periods where I, I would drink. I mean, if, you, if, if there was four of us in the room... Um, I would drink most of the bottle of scotch, but I was able to quote unquote keep it together. Like I wasn't falling apart like belligerent drunk or an idiot uh, for the most part. Um, but uh, it wasn't like normal. It was like you pour me that drink and like just give me the bottle because I'm not going to stop until that bottle's done. And if I'm still standing, I'm going to go get more. That's just that's just the way that. I so yeah, it doesn't, there's not a normal level of relationship with a with a cup of whiskey is no. not enough. No, no. Okay. No. And then even the history for me was when I started drinking, you know, first drink at like first drink ever like at 12, 13 ish, you know, consistent drinking 14, 15, heavy drinking by 16. Um, it was always um, give me more, give me more, give me more, you know. So um, from the get go. Yeah, from the get go. It was never like, oh, oh hey, this, this is great. Like when I discovered because I hated, uh, I never never liked beer at all. Like, just never liked beer. And that goes, and I think like, we've talked about this. That goes back to when I was probably four or five years old. I was bugging my dad. Give me, I want a drink, I want a drink. I didn't realize it was beer. He's like, you can't have this. I'm like, I want it. He goes, fine. And it, it was like Blatt's. I don't even think they make Blatt's beer I've anymore. Never heard it's of like, Blatt's. It must be a Midwest beer or something like that. I took a big swig, didn't even swallow it, and just spit it out. And I just remember how awful that tasted. So I never was, like, all through high school, and this is embarrassing, I was a Bartles and James wine cooler guy. You got to cut cut the podcast. <laughs> turn, on, turn it off. <clears throat> That's how bad it was, because I so loved how it felt when I drank. I would drink schnapps, all the canned, the sweet stuff, and then that, and then I discovered mixed drinks. And I'll never forget the first time I had a Seagram 7 and 7. Seagram 7 and 7 Up. I was like, this is the best thing. Like, where has this been all my life? Uh, yeah, that's so funny you said that because, you know, when you first start going out, I was probably 21 and, you know, you don't, I don't know what going out means because right. I was a Christian since right. I was 17. Right. So I used to do some pretty hard drugs and stuff, but I hadn't gone out into bars and stuff. Right. That was the cool drink. Right. When I started going out, <laughs> it was, it was, people were like, yeah, can I get a, what is this? Seven and seven? Give me seven, seven. Seven, seven, yeah. I was like, they're like, try this. I was like, oh, okay. It was, I mean, that was big then. I don't know if it's big now. It's really yeah. kind of like high fashion drinks, you know? Yeah. Well, the old, the old fashioned, actually, right. or something yeah, yeah, like that. Right. I, I wouldn't like know that, what yeah. an old fashioned is, but. No, yeah. neither would I. But, but, that, but that's what it was. And I remember um, being at a party in high school, and my friend, uh, my friend David, he had a bottle and he goes, you want to try? So he tried and, I, and I, I'm like, what is this? He goes, it's seven and seven. I'm like, well, you know, what, what, what is this seven and seven? He's like, well, it's, you know, Seagram's and then seven up. 
And I was pounding them. And he looks at me and he goes, Aaron, you've got to slow down. You cannot drink. I'm like, nah, this is great, you know? So I'm just pounding these things because they taste great. He's like, dude, you are going to get sick. I'm like, I'm going to be fine, right? Oh, by the end of the night, oh my gosh, I walked out of Taco Taco John's. I don't think we even have Taco John's here. We have like Taco Bell. Taco John's, I think, is a mainland Midwest taco place. I used to love it. They had these, they had these um, potato olays. were basically like little round seasoned, uh, I guess, mini like... Uh, uh, tater tots? Like tater tots, right? But they were kind of flat and round. And you mm-hmm. put them in nacho cheese. Oh my gosh, it was just amazingness. I remember going in, we ate, I walked out of Taco John's and just threw up everything right in the middle of the parking lot of Taco John's. And it was just like, but next day I woke up, I'm like, that was the best thing ever. So I was like doing the Seagram's, the Seagram's route. Anyways, I don't know where we were going with that. Oh, that, that, yeah, yeah. So yeah, but that's how I drank. It was right. just like to the, to the, to the end of just oblivion every time, all the time. It was not, uh, it was about to party back then. When I relapsed in 2012 on, on, on uh, opioids, it was never about a party. It was just about numbing. It was just about then eventually being so physically and mentally and emotionally addicted to the painkillers and then drinking again. It was just about trying to feel normal, just being able to function. Uh, and, and that's where it ends up. So I have to remind myself that like, hey, you know, I, I can go to, a, I, can, I, don't, I don't go to bars just because I'm at that time of my life where it's like, I got three kids, they're all teenagers. It's like, I'm not hanging out in bars. But like, you know, socially, they're on the beach, we have parties, stuff like that. People are drinking. It doesn't affect it, it, you. It doesn't throw me off for the, for the most part. For the part, most part, yeah. sure, yeah. No, I, but I do, <clears throat> excuse me, I have to have things in place. So now, like I, I was saying, uh, uh, June twelfth, just uh, four days ago, I hit three years clean and sober. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Yeah, when I got that text, I was everyone just started. It was a group text you sent to your yeah. friends, and everyone just started saying back what, what how ha- happy they were, proud of you, and it's crazy. You yeah. have so many friends, and um, everyone was so happy for you. Yeah, man. and that's and see that's what's so crazy because I think that I was probably one of the lucky people who, when I was hitting rock bottom in 2018 and, and stuff was just falling apart or had fallen apart, had fell apart completely. The wheels had just come off my life and therefore the life of my family, my wife and my kids, uh, the place I was working at. Um, I was lucky enough to have family and friends that cared enough about me um, to make sure my family was okay during this uh, I learned later, they're just like, dude, like even your brother, Max, like, like, uh, Dean who walks, was one of the people who really walked closely with me, uh, through this. Um, in fact, if you are new to this podcast, you can look in and look up for, um, walking through somebody with, uh, walking through addiction with somebody or walking through alcoholism. I had Dean on there and he just shared his experience of my insanity and, and really how it affected him like emotionally and just, it put him in a really bad, bad spot. But my, my point is this, um, I should finish that thought though with, he did learn now, like what boundaries are when, you know, not just dealing with insane people like me, but just like kind of in that. So it did, you know, he came out okay. So, uh, which is, which is clear. If you're, if you have somebody in your life that is struggling with drugs and alcohol, you have to have clear boundaries. And you know this, Ben, and we've talked about this. You've got to have boundaries. You got to know when to say no. You can't save the person, 
Uh, but you can intervene as much as you can so that they can get the help that they need. But it's not easy. You have to be healthy in order for you to set the boundaries so that other person can get the help that they need. We're not going to save anybody, but we can let people know that we love them, that, that we're concerned for them, um, but we can do the best that we can. And no one's going to do this perfectly to not enable them. Uh, which is a learning curve because we're going to do that. You know, people had enabled me. My wife was in, Kareen was in huge denial uh, for a lot of it, um, mostly because of my, my manipulation and lying, but she didn't want to believe what was happening was happening. So, and you can actually, there's a podcast that we did called Kareen's Story where she shares some of the things that, that she struggled with being the wife of an alcoholic mm -hmm. and an addict. And I recommend people check that one out as well. Um, but anyway, so three years, I had I, I was lucky enough to have people who cared for me. Your your brother was one that knew what was going on, and they just said, "Okay, our kids won't ride with Aaron when he, if we're going to or fro anywhere because we know that we don't know if he's been drinking or not. So we're going to have those in, but nobody ever pressured me. But they showed concern and love, and I know not everybody has that. I know that some people in an addict's mind does not see the world clearly. We see the the, the world through the lens that we want to see it, and I know that um, I've yet to meet an addict who was happy with their life who woke up one day and said, yeah, I want to be an alcoholic and an addict and, you know, alienate my family and lie and cheat and steal or manipulate people or do whatever. We don't wake up wanting to do that, but we end up there eventually. Um, and not everybody has people because we've burned bridges and, you know, we've stolen and I've stolen from my family, from my kids uh, in order to have money for alcohol, right? And it was a long road of amends when I got sober of sitting down with them and one, asking forgiveness, apologizing, and asking what can I do to mend this relationship. Uh, and it's, it was not fun, but our relationship that I have with all three of my kids now is stronger because I had to go through that hell that I created. Yeah, I think we're talking about the role of relationships and, and when it comes to walking with people with addiction into health and how important that is. You know, and I just think about in our lives how we found the Lord and that's our story. Yeah. You might not have found the Lord, but you know how the church is a bunch of people yeah. who, you know, gather in, you know, we had a small group type of a church called the living room yeah. at that point. Yeah. And there was these, uh, I mean, there was just relationships that have lasted for 20 years, yeah. 25 years. Yeah. And these sorts of things are, I think, one of the missing links. You know, I've heard people say, well, you have to find a higher power, right? I don't know the 12 steps, but I, I bet one of them is that you have to have people in your life. Yeah. And that's one of the things that makes life worth living or makes getting clean worth getting clean. And they also can help yeah. and aid and support and be friends. And, you know, this is one of those things where, man, I, the friendship circle that you have now is so big. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I, if I sent it, I don't know if I have a group text that I would send out to, to one group of friends that all know each other. I probably have like four or five pockets of friends right. that are big. Right. But you have like one group of friends that know everything about what you struggled with. It was a big vulnerability um, test for you. And, you know, you let us all in. And, and because of it, you have three years. Yeah. Part yeah. of it. I mean, because yeah. of your your hard work and your willingness to ask for help. Yeah. Yeah, and and that was um, and that was the thing too. If I go back to the end, it wasn't that. Um, I mean, how it came down to it, and I think this is relevant for what I'm, what we're talking about now, and what I want to talk about here in just a minute, um, which is relapse. 
is for me, I was driving home. Uh, this was towards the end. Corrine was very suspicious. I didn't know that she had found a bottle and she'd gone to our circle of friends and, and just said, what do I do? And um, she was seeing a counselor at that time uh, and they just said, don't do anything. He's got to admit it to you. If you, if you confront him on it, he's going to deny it. Um, so don't do anything, which is, which is hard for anybody to do. Because here's a person that you love that is making your life hellacious. Here's a person that you love who is miserable, um, who's obviously, if they continue down this road, is going to end up killing themselves, somebody else, or, or getting arrested or whatever. So you want to do what you can. But so she took that advice. And I'll never forget, I'm driving home. And I can't remember where I was driving home from. But the Lord spoke to me and said, Aaron, you know that it's all going to come crashing down. And I said, yeah, I know. And the Lord said, okay, good, just so you know. And sure enough, it was either that night or the next day, Kareen brought me into this little, one of the rooms we had in our house at that time where we were living. And um, she sat down and she goes, what's going on? And I'm like, what? Nothing. And I knew. So I remember, okay, the Lord just said this to me. I knew, I like, I, I had no more lies. I turned into like a 14-year-old kid. I was like, uh, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't lie anymore because I knew at that point that she knew. And she goes, I, I, she goes, be at I, what's going on? And I said, no, nothing. And, 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 you know, this or that or whatever. And she just stood up, put her finger in my face and just said, you're a liar and walked mm-hmm. out of the room. And I have never felt so ashamed or horrible than I did in that moment. Um, and then she ended up taking our kids, going to church actually that night. Uh, and I was like, no, I'm going to stay home. I need to clear my head. So I went and got a bottle, got drunk. And then, you know, I texted her, yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. I've been drinking, all this kind of stuff. So I didn't know that she had actually found the bottle and then uh, noticed the the credit, our, our, our check debit card statement of like, every day there's a charge for like $11.50 at the same gas station. Right. And there's and my, my hustle was oh, I'm putting gas in the I had to get oil for the car and it always came to eleven oil 11. every 50. day you know exactly right <laughs> it was it was so I can't believe I got away for, for as long as I did right um, but again she wanted to believe the best in me she wanted to believe that this was something else uh, and she actually went down to the gas station walked in and goes to the counter and says um, what costs eleven dollars and fifty cents here to the to the just this. this this person working at the register and they're like, uh, I don't know. She's like, my husband comes in here every day, $11 and 50 cents. She goes, the only thing that we have that would cost that much would be alcohol. My wife's like, thank you. And just leaves. I'm sure that lady's like, what was that about? Right? Uh, so she knew. Um, but my point was this, my point was, um, that it's not like I was about to lose my job. Uh, you know, that I was actually functioning in, in my role uh, for my job at that time, and things were going well, uh, and um, and so I finally, you know, I did admit to her, and then I began to admit to other people. Went to the people that I was working with and said, "Hey, here's what's happening. You know, I'm, I'm alcoholic. I'm, you know, I had a, I had a plan of recovery in place. It didn't like I was doing an intensive outpatient uh, at one of the local rehabs uh, facilities uh, treatment centers here on Oahu." 
I wasn't ready. It didn't work. I think I stayed sober for 10 days that time. And then I was like, this is dumb. And I just started drinking again. And that brought me to the bottom where blowout fight with my wife. And I said, I can't stop. She goes, fine, pull your head out of your butt. She didn't say butt. And do what you need to do because I'm done. And that just set in motion me being able to get to the mainland to this treatment center, which was a whole nother story. Um, but again, I had to come to a point where uh, it wasn't because I got busted necessarily. And it was a bust. It was like my life I had realized was so out of control and I was so miserable and everybody around me was miserable that I needed to get help. And I was, I was worried. I really was, uh, that, uh, that it would, this was not going to end well. But the cool thing is, is it can end well. You're going to have to go through a lot of crap, but it is worth it. Uh, you're going to have to, if you choose a 12-step program, work and live those 12 steps. You're going to have to do that daily, daily. I remember it was interesting hitting three years on Saturday. Uh, yeah, on Saturday, I think it was the 12th. Um, hitting three years because the last year went so fast. And I remember going to when we were meeting uh, at AA. Um, every single day I would drive and i go to this morning AA meeting, my home group. And I just remember, like, I'm not going to make it through tomorrow. But I made it through tomorrow. Then, then the next day and the next day. And I, and I developed friendships there, right? It was really difficult. As open as I am, just because, of, you know, being a pastor and having to talk. And I, I often talk about my failures um, because I've come out on the other end. So, But when it comes to, like, sitting in a room full of other alcoholics and addicts who can smell BS a mile away. And not that I was BSing before, but. It was, it was nerve-wracking and to, be, to share my story and to feel like I'm going to be judged. Where this is the most non-judgmental place. You, know, you share your stories and people are laughing. Not at you, but because they're just like, dude. I, I relate. I relate. Totally did that, right? Um, but it was going to, I didn't know how I was going to get to 30 days. I remember getting my, my 30 days. I'm like, I can't believe I made it. And these little plastic chips that they give you. And I'm just like, I still have every single one. I'm like, man, I can't believe I made it. And then, it, but it, take, it would take forever to get to the next 30 days and to the next 30 days and to get to a year. But this last year went like that. And I just kind of sat back and went, wow, that's crazy that it went so fast. And to me, I'm like, wow, I'm doing it day by day. I'm making the best choices. I'm trying to do the next right thing. One of those cliches that I used to hate, but I'm like, it's true. And uh, I made it to three years. Here's the interesting part. So I almost relapsed. And it would have been last week, two days before I hit three years. Wow. So this is how it laid out. Um, so for my work, I work from home. So And I do an, uh, uh, an, uh, an online class uh, for teens doing healthy relationships. And so we talk about healthy relationships and because of COVID, everything is distance, everything's over Zoom. Uh, so we, we uh, me and, and some, I got a, some other people that work with me that, so we do this, right? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, so I had to uh, work remotely because my internet was not functioning because I have three teenagers at home, school is out and it's not working because they're all on the internet. And then if I'm in the, um, summer's hit, it gets a little hot in Hawaii. It um, does. In yeah. the summers, right? We're starting to feel that. 
Uh, so I'm like, this is, I, I have to go to a place. We have some friends who live on the mainland that have a place here that like, hey, if you ever need to use this, Kareem kind of cleans it and manages it, makes sure the stuff's working properly. So when they do come back, it's set. And I'm standing there. And when I first went there, you know, they um, they cleaned out all the alcohol and all this kind of stuff. And um, it was... Uh, it was okay because it wasn't in there, right? And then, it, and, and so I used it this time and there was alcohol out there. Uh, and it got me to a place where it wasn't throwing me off and I'm like doing my class and I'm, I got the computer up and I'm looking in the background and there's this expensive bottle of like whiskey or scotch or something there. I'm like, okay, that's, that, that, that's fine. I don't have to worry about that. Um, but it put me into a mindset of starting to obsess over drinking again mm-hmm. and starting to obsess over um, n- making it romantic, n- being very nostalgic for sure. it. And it was, um, it, was the, it was the hardest struggle. And I was doing an all-day class. And it's not like I could just stop class and go, hey, I got to go somewhere else. Give me 20 minutes and we'll start again. This is an 8.30 to 3, 3 p.m. class. I have to finish this class, right? And I have a co-facilitator and all this kind of stuff. So I had to go back to looking at my program and say, okay, I'm not going to do this. Mm-hmm. So I reached out to my network. Um, I actually almost texted you. Yeah. But I didn't. I just I don't think I did. No, I didn't. Otherwise, you would know about this. I almost texted you. Um but so what I did was I texted my addiction counselor and said, hey, this is where I'm at. I'm not going to take this. I will not do this. I reached out to, I still have a list of people that if I'm in a bad spot, that I will call, that I will text, that I will reach out to immediately for accountability. So um, there's a handful of people that I went to treatment with that we're st- like, we still, we connect not as, we used to do like every week. I, I have another group chat with them that we kind of check in, but we all kind of hit three years at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. We're staggered by about 10 days or so. So I reached out to them and I said, hey guys, accountability, this is what I'm struggling with. This is where I'm at. Um, I won't do this, but I need somebody else to know that I'm vulnerable right now. And they immediately text back. And this is what one of them says. Hey, we're standing with you. Um, play the effing tape. So this is something that we learned. Oh. So we learned this back at the, I went to this place called The Retreat. And the guy who was over um, like the men's section of it, like the point person there, a counselor there, he, he sat us down like, uh, like within like the first week that I was there. And he goes, all right, if you guys, he goes, this is, this is a technique that you can use if you feel like you're going to use or drink. Think about the last drunk that you had. Not the last drink, because with a drink, we, it's like, oh, a drink. And all of a sudden it's great and it's awesome and yeah, wonderful. And yeah, it wasn't that bad. The last drunk that you had, or if it's not the last drunk, think about the worst time that you can remember where you're at when you're drinking. Yeah. Play that tape in your head. Because if you take a drink or take a drug, that's where you're going to end up. And so I'm just like, yes, I'm playing the tape. I'm reaching out. And those are the safeguards that I have in place. If I would have tried to do it on my own, it's going, yeah, it's not a big deal. I can, I can get through this and whatever. And I probably could. I, I, don't, I wasn't going to drink or take anything. But it would have left that thought in my sure. mind. And I would begin to obsess it. But when I expose it to the light 
I let people know, then they're checking up on me. Then they're knowing that, hey, you can pray for me or check in on me or let's, let's talk about this, right? Uh, and even with my addiction counselor, I'm just like, hey, we didn't have anything set till the end of the month. I'm like, I think, she's like, I, I can make time for you. I got openings this weekend. I'm like, yes, let's, let's do a, a, a telehealth thing on Sunday and then we'll keep our in-person appointment the next week because I need to process at a deeper level for this yeah. for somebody who knows all the ins and outs. Um, but I have to say, it threw me off. Like, I don't think, I, in being sober, even when newly sober, I can't remember being that obsessed over drinking uh, before. So yeah, so um, so knowing that that temptation is there and, and feeling it as, as heavy as I did and not having felt it for a while, I was scared that I let myself get to that point, allowed my mind to go there. That's what scared me. Um, but it wasn't until like after processing it with um, my friends and then now having an appointment coming up with, with my addiction counselor to process through that. Um, it, it scared me that I wasn't that scared in the moment. Like I had a plan to get away with all of it. Just, had, it just came back. Yeah, like yeah. That. I'm just like, oh, I'll just do this, say this, do this. And they're not going to know. There's no way they're going to know. Um, and they would have known. Because, you know, if you're, you know, I think only like um, uh, addicts really, well, I don't know if I can say that, but ob obsess over that level of how much is in there or not. Or, you know, I think when you're in that, for me, when I'm in that lying, deceiving, cheating mode, <laughs> which, hey, my brain still goes back there. It took me, a, one of the things of rewiring my thoughts was not having an excuse or a lie whenever I'm confronted with something or somebody questions me about something. Because I'd lived like that for most of my life of having a, an excuse. And then at the, the last five years, trying to make sure that nobody knows what I'm doing. So I have to have three or four excuses to pull out of my pocket so that I can kind of dissuade them from actually pursuing any more questioning about what I'm doing, right? Right. You know, a master manipulator if you will. But anyways, yeah, so that was interesting. What I did know about it, this is that at like the, I, I think I'm getting this correct. I'm trying, I'm doing this from memory. At like, the, I think like the six month or nine month, the one year, uh, the one year, the two year, the three year and the five year, something like that, because of what uh, drugs and alcohol does to a person's brain, because there, it does, there's a rewiring that happens in the, with the dopamine and the reward system and that gets jacked up. Like your brain has to heal. It takes like, a, like at least a year for an alcoholic's brain to heal and get back to normal functioning. But we still have to do a lot of work, depending on the damage that's done, in putting those safeguards in place so that when I get to a place like I did last week, that I can know I don't want to take that drink. Because my brain is going, dude, don't you remember how awesome it was? And then you're like going, yeah, it felt great. Because I think it's called, uh, there's these dendritic, dendritic spines and then they hold our memories. If I'm getting this wrong and you know about this, I apologize. I'm trying to go back from all this stuff. I've, I've been studying and learning about this. But <clears throat> it brings back these memories of only the good stuff. So people ask, like, how can an addict continually do something 
that causes so much pain in their life and in other people's lives. Because our brains are messed up. Because it's a disease. It's not a moral failing. It's not just that we can't make good choices. It's because we can convince ourselves, and I mean our brains can convince ourselves to only want to hold on to the good things. And it's hard. Like I, when, when I sit and I see somebody taking a drink on TV, and I'm like, that's what I think, like, oh, man. I just remember sitting down and having that glass of scotch. It was never like that. It was hiding, drinking rot gut vodka from the gas station. It was never sitting in a nice setting and just enjoying the time and having a sip. It was hiding somewhere in my house or driving around and drinking as much as I could and figuring out how I'm gonna cover up the smell, how I'm gonna hide the bottle. It wasn't fun, but my brain doesn't remember that. It's funny, so you're saying the brain remembers only the good stuff. It, it, it does, and I have to train myself to play that tape, to remember how horrible it was and where it'll end up in an instant if I go there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's gnarly. And oh, I, I, one real quick thing too is, um, uh, with that struggle, right, I reached out, the reason I didn't text you, Ben, and the reason I didn't text anybody on island other than my addiction counselor, because in that circle of friends that knows what I struggled with, mm-hmm. I'm like, then this is exactly what went through my mind. So this is what goes through this addict, alcoholic's mind. Even when it comes to accountability, they're on island. They're close to me in physical proximity as well as like that emotional, spiritual connection that, that I have with you and with other people. And it made me uncomfortable that accountability was that close to me. So I went, because I pulled your name up. To the second, you went second and I went, tier. And I went, no, 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 not going. Pulled up another friend of mine who's on island that I meet with regularly. Nope, delete, 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 not gonna tell them. Okay, I'm gonna reach out to my addiction counselor. I did that, and then I went, okay, my friends from rehab. So I got I got Marie, Jamie, uh, Nick. Um, it's kind of like the, the uh, I'm close to everybody. There's, uh, there's Bridget and, um, uh, some, uh, and a lot of other people that, if they listen to this, I, I'm super close to, but in the moment I can't remember people's names. So I'm so <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. But there's a whole group of them. But I just quickly brought up Jamie, Marie, and and um, and just reached out to them. Jamie I connected with. He's a pastor from Chicago. Um, he was the first person I was introduced to when I went to treatment. And that was the Lord opening that door. Mm-hmm. Marie, she was the first person um, who um, I had just a real conversation with in treatment. It was day three. I'll, that's a story for another time. But she was blunt and to the point. And I was like, all right, we can be friends because you're not taking BS. You're just calling it as you see it. And that's her personality. And Nick was in my small group. We Everybody had a small group that they went through and processed through and did step stuff with. And at the end of the day, uh, and we just connected. And again, he's hilarious. We used to play Cards Against Humanity. That was one of the card games that we played. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, he ju- uh, he was hilarious with the, with this, not just with the cards he would play, but the stories he would come up with. Oh my gosh, it was so funny. And we just connected. So I just went to them three. Not that I'm not close to anybody else from treatment. Um, anyways, and uh, those are the ones that, that texted back. Play the effing tape, dude. You know, just don't do it. You know, I wonder if there's also something in your subconscious mind because your mind works so fast that you're thinking, you know what, these guys, that if I text these guys that are on island, they would come, 
maybe, you know, I would come over, but you know, maybe I wouldn't know what to say. Right. You know what I mean? Like maybe the, the people on your group text that I was on when you hit three years, we, we love you, we care for you, but you know, maybe we're not equipped yet. Maybe that's what we need to learn because those guys, they're going to say exactly what you need to hear in that second. Right. If you texted me, I would have said, I would have said, dude, I'm coming over. Right. But you maybe you didn't want that. Yeah. I yeah, and you I, know, or or, or I would have made it into something bigger than what it needed to be at that moment, maybe, or maybe you know, it. I think this is something that you should figure out, like, with a few of us here, because and and help us know what to say, because yeah, it's it's something that no one knows unless you've been trained on. I think that's the point. It's the language, it's the training. There's care, there's love, but. But we don't have the words, maybe. Right. And I think two things with what you said is, I want to ask you this question because, again, you struggled with heavy drug use in your teenage years, right? Yeah. These hardcore drugs, right? You came out of that. Um, but then you've had family members that are in that addiction, right? And we've talked about it on this podcast. So what about that? Like, wh- as a person who's struggled with drug addiction and who's come out of it and having a family member show up at your house or want to show up at your house? Like, what would you say to them? Or what in the past have you done when you knew this is what they're asking? Uh, I'm not using names. I know that we've used names in the past, so I'm just leaving that to you to, to, yeah. to, to, to say what you want to say. I think, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. right? So like, like in those moments when, it, when it's been a close family member, what have, what have you done in those instances? See, I think it's different because it's a family member. Okay. There's so much baggage and there's so many years so, you know, with us, we don't have baggage. Right. So that's, there's a helpful, I can be helpful. You know, when it's my brother, it's hard for me to be helpful. He he needs a group of friends that he could call on. He needs a rehab person that he can go to. You know, I can't be that person for him. And that was the problem is I was that person. So even recently, this is even within the last month. Oh, wow. So things are ramping up. Uh, I have, uh, my younger brother is uh, been on a tear and he is like you where he you know he's an addict and he can't he can't just do normal drugs right he does you know he takes it to the nth degree and um it got to the point to where he was here showing up i was you know saying you know you can't stay but you can do this you you know i'll give you a drink you can shower you can go you know that's where we were at and then finally it got to this boiling point where i said he's like i'm going into rehab on tuesday you know i mean you know how hard it is. Yeah. I pick him up at 7 o'clock on Tuesday morning, right. be here. He was out all night, the whole deal. I take him there that night. And I'm telling you, it was hell getting him there. Like, my life was p- totally put on hold for two to three weeks because he was here. Cops showed up at this house. Oh, no. And, you know, this he can't bring his thing here. So right. I had to make the explanation to the neighbors and right. to my landlord and the whole deal. And um, a lot of love all around, yeah. a lot of grace all around. But I, that night when I took him to the uh, rehab, he he left. Oh. And then he the next uh, week he tried to call me again, and that's I just drew the line. So th- I just drew the line on three weeks ago where I told him, I said, dude, you can't affect my life like this. I can't see you again. Call me when you get into rehab. Right. Don't call me. You don't come here. You're, you're obviously not allowed to come here because now, you know, you brought yeah. the cops and all. 
So this is what addiction is in my family. And I think a lot of people all around America, especially in Hawaii, have this family member uh, that is in this place where he's causing havoc or she's causing havoc to the family. And um, I, it was funny because I used to have such a hard heart, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, when the same thing happened for right. the fourth time. Right. So what's the difference between then and now? The difference between then and now is, is that I thought all these years he'd be better, but he's not. And so my heart starts breaking the older he gets, the sadder it gets, you know. And uh, I guess I love him more and I've seen my dad. You know, you're losing people. Right. So you, who do you have left? You know, your friends, your family. And with him, it's just a sadder thing. I, I used to be a really hard person, like I draw the line. Don't ever come. I don't care. I'm never going to see you again. When you're ready, you know, you make your choices. Now I feel like I'm a parent to mm-hmm. him. And I, it's just sad because, you know, I don't want to enable him and I know I shouldn't. But um, there's times where I'm like, man, he, he, I don't know if he's going to make it. Right. So I want him to know I love him. Right. And then finding that line is right. really difficult. So and if you don't mind me asking, and thank you for being so open about this too, because I think this, this is a point that people need to hear because they're hearing from, because you know what the struggle of addiction is like, right? And now you know what it's like within your family and having to process through that. I was surprised for you to say that, well, one, that you could ever be hard-hearted. I just, I've known you since 1998. Oh, really? I, see, I think I'm so hard-hearted, but no right? one ever thinks that. And I think, man, I think I'm hiding it well. <laughs> and I don't think you are. I think, I think when, when we're pushed to extreme circumstances, right, we have the backstage view of our thoughts, of our emotions, of where we're at, right? And so mm-hmm. even if we don't externally show uh, our, and I'll say it this way, our disgust or in the moment hatred uh, and just overwhelmed overwhelmedness to somebody, whether it's a family member, a friend, or somebody that we love, we have to process those feelings. We carry it. So you carry that with you, right? Yeah. So I think my mind takes me to, I think you know maybe, and just and if I'm wrong, just tell me, you know where you would like to be with that, where you're at now. 20 years ago, it was hard-heartedness because I would think there's self-preservation, that you can only carry so much. You have to think about where were you at in your life 20 years ago? That's a good point, What yeah. were you trying to go through? So your hard-heartedness may have been self-preservation of actually setting boundaries. And I think that um, the wisdom that you've gained over the past 20 years of the consistently having to deal with this with your brother um, and different circumstances in your family and things that are going on with your dad and all this kind of stuff that you are taking a step back and going, okay, I got to have grace. I don't condone the action. I, I, I can't judge him in a sense, but your heart aches because you know where this is eventually going to lead if he doesn't actually stay where he needs to stay, and which, in my opinion, is he's got to be in something that's like a two-year program that has mental health stuff, that has not just how to stay sober because... Drugs and alcohol are the current problem, but it's the vehicle in which addicts use to deal with life, with things we've never dealt with. And I think this is this is kind of maybe why I've treated him differently this time around, a little more gracious, a little more soft, is because I see exactly what you said. This is, I know that I struggle with the same things he does. 
That's what's different. Back then, I thought, you know, you got to get it together. You know, I was, I couldn't articulate why I had an addiction problem. And he definitely could not. But together now, it was our family, you right. know? And so it was chaos. It's how we, we deal with chaos. And and so now I, I, I guess when he comes over, I feel like I'm, uh, I see my weakness. I see that I would have been like him had it not been for different things. Right. And, you know, and so there's a softness in my heart and you go as far, my life, what I want to do is I want to go as far as I can with being as gracious as I can for as long as I can before it starts hurting somebody. Right. And I think with him, I've learned that I know can, I, when I should stop. Right. But before I was not even, I would just say, well, do it on your own. Right. And now, you know, for good or for bad, I've become a little more because I see how I am. I'm actually him. Right. In a different body. Right. With the same sort of problems. And um, so, yeah, you know, it's so difficult dealing with family members and, and whatnot. And at the same time, keeping your own life right. together. So, you know, I still am an ex-addict. Yeah. But though it might have happened 20 years ago, I have different things that I'm working out in my life. I'm not whole. I'm moving towards right, that, right? but I'm not. So his drug is crystal meth. My drug is um, being alone and processing and watching 20 hours of YouTube, <laughs> right. you know, on my day off. Right, right. And, uh, you know, that's not healthy. I have other things as yeah. well. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But it's eating, you know, yeah, whatever I'm right. doing now. Yeah. So it's there's a, there's a compassion that's on me, but, um, yeah. Well, and I think what you're talking about is um, what you put in place to deal with life. And everybody has something. And nobody's 100% healthy. That's the truth. We're in process. Yeah. And I think what's unique for you, too, and this is what I hope I want people to pick up on uh, and really understand with what Ben is saying is, because I'm hearing you say that, um, you know, even after all these years, you feel like your heart has changed, your understanding, and you have more grace and compassion, right? And every situation with every family or every friend, every addict is different. That's why there are so many different modalities of treatment out there. Like, no, you should do this. Or no, yeah, yeah people coming off heroin or, or whatever should take this drug and then that or whatever. Or no, it should be abstinence only. Or no, it has to be 12 steps. Or no, 12 steps don't work. And Oh, all the, there's so many different things out there for people because we haven't figured out how to fully deal with people in addiction because it's mental health issues, it's emotional issues. The drugs and alcohol are the vehicle to which we deal with the reality we don't want to deal with. That's what it comes down to. There's, there's um, all these factors. People don't understand this. I barely understand this, right? I mean, people who are in the industry say... We don't know why it works for one person and why it works for different. Every addict is unique and every treatment to them is not a one-size-fits-all. But what I hear what you're saying, Ben, is that um, it's hard to, to try to just cut somebody out of your life, right? That you set boundaries. Okay, yeah, you can come and do this and okay, but not that. And then when it got super gnarly, then it's like, dude, you've burned that bridge now. Like, you can't even come here anymore, yeah. um, which makes your heart break and you want to have more grace and compassion. But grace and compassion now looks like you call me 
or contact me when you're in treatment, when, we, when I know you're detoxed, when you're thinking clearly, when you're at least in a moment of, of, of respite, Respite? Respite? Dang it, respite. man. I'm trying to I use... I think it's... Is it spelled respite? Respite? I, it, it, I think but it was an respite. E. You know what? I shouldn't try to sound smart. That was a good you know, one. When, when your life's on pause from the addiction and you're clear-minded and your body's not... Um, you're through the detox process, uh, which doesn't mean... I mean, it takes a while to get clear-minded, especially after crystal meth. I mean, sometimes it takes a couple of years for the brain to even fully recover from that. It yeah. does so much damage, right? Um, but anyways, that, you know... You know, call me when you're there because it's not your job, even as his brother, to carry his baggage. That's he right. has to deal with it. Yeah, and you know, maybe the older I get, this is one thing that I think I've I've seen progress in my life when it comes to dealing with him was I'm able to say exactly what I feel right in a way that is loving. So, you know, when I was twenty it was Mother ever get off my property, you don't ever show me <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm just emoting every single thing. Yeah. This time when he comes here, you know, when I remember he would walk through that gate right there and I would just, I would just go, cause he's so tired. I mean, this yeah. guy has not slept. He has nowhere else to go. That's why right. he's here. Yep. So I just hug him. I, go, I love you. I love you. You know, every dog. And then, you know, when he leaves, you know, he's, he's like, can I have a ride somewhere? Oh yeah. I take him somewhere. And then I just, I just tell him, yeah, I love you, man. Get, you know, I hope you're doing it. And, it, you know, that kind of progressed into the point to where, you know, there was this last meeting. This was um, the day before I took him to rehab. I said to him, you know, he was in this bad place. Yeah. He looked like a different person. I just looked at him. I said, dude, you know, um, here's your stuff. <laughs> Dropping his stuff right. off, right? Getting it off of my hands. Yeah. Give him a hug. I said, dude, I love you. And, uh, you know, I never do this. I never say Bible verses to people because it's... You know, I'm not trying to say that, but when someone yeah. is, he was in such a bad place, Aaron, and a lot of us are dealing with family members like this or have or will. Yeah. And this is who we're talking to now. And I looked at him and I just said, I said, I just started telling him stuff. Like I said, yeah, as far as the East is from the West. Right. That's good. And here's the thing. <coughs> That's how far God's yeah. removed your transgressions from you. Yeah. And I just, you know, I just tell him, I love you, man. Kind of getting emotional just because, you know, I just said, you know, this is actually how I feel about you. Yeah. This is how he feels about letting him know I love you. And but I am making this choice. But this is how I feel about you. Yeah. And, you know, I said, you better be there tomorrow morning because then, <laughs> uh, then I reality. Right. Or I'm not waking up yeah, at right. six o'clock. Yeah. If you're not going to be there, yeah. he said, I'll be there. Right. Sure enough, he was there. The next time I saw him, he. He, you know, tried to pull the, oh my gosh, they, this is why they kicked me out. Uh, and I said, I said, I, and I, I love you. I hope the best for you. You know, you can call me anytime, but I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Next time you call me, be in rehab, I'll be praying for you. Yeah. You know, I love you. Yeah. I have to do this. Yeah. So I'm able to articulate it in a way that I couldn't before. And he senses the love. I think that love motivates people, but they still need to do the work. Yeah. No, absolutely. And what you're saying is so powerful, Ben, and thank you again for sharing. It's because, and you can say that to your brother, because he has a context and a connection to God that he understands. Right. And he's gone periods of his life, not just with that, oh, I know God loves me, but living out in God's love and 
because of a imposed structure on his life, um, was making right choices. Right. Right? And also, you know, even if someone doesn't believe in God, if you said something like that to them, you know, if there was a God, and this God, you know, the Bible right. does teach that as far as the East is yeah. from the West, that's how far God's removed. He doesn't remember it anymore. Yeah. Like there's a fresh start for yeah. you. There's a new, and for me, when I'm telling him that, he's just learning that's how I think of him. Yeah. Because that's what I need. Yeah. You know, so there's this e- evening of the playing field. Yeah. Is that, hey man, we're all messed up, but, you know, God has a new plan for you and I need it, and you need it, and this is what I believe in you. I don't think that you're a drug addict. I think that you're full of potential. That's huge. That's what I'm trying to communicate to him. And those sorts of things, when I think, oh, man, I haven't had any progress in my life for the last 20 years, then inside how I dealt with my brother in that hard situation, I said, you know what? I've become more aware of my frailty. Right. So I'm able to offer grace more to him in his. Yeah. And I think what's so key, Ben, is that... Your grace is not putting you in a place of like, yeah, I'm a doormat, I'll do whatever you want, walk all over me and there's no boundaries. Your grace is understanding, compassion, empathy, love with boundaries and knowing that I can't, it's not for me to carry your weight, that I will love you, I will support you, but I will not support when you're in this place because that's not a place you should be, right? Right. Um, and I think that's what's key because I think you, you're pinpointing what so many people are today or yesterday or will tomorrow be walking through, right? And again, it comes down to how do you keep yourself healthy with this? Mm-hmm. Like what, is, what, what, what do you do, Ben, knowing that, okay, now he bounced. He's, he's not there anymore. This is the reason it happened. Um, and... How do you move forward with that? This is the hard part because, you know, everyone has this, everyone has someone in their life that's like this, whether it's a friend or family member, everyone does. And if you don't, when you grow up, your kids might have, you know, be that place. And if you think they can't, then just listen to the millions of people who've dealt with this. It's alcoholism and drug abuse is so rampant that these skills I think should be taught in the school. I think so too. You know, and let people know, how do you deal with a family member that's going through these things? It's really, really hard. And I would just say, you know, compassion and boundaries, all these things have to be learned. It took all these years for me to kind of get it right with him. And still, how do I move forward? You can, but you can't. Yeah. Because Pete, you love people, so there's a limit to how far and how free I can be, you know. And it just depends on your family situation. So some people have it great, and they can live their own life. Yeah. Some other people can live their life, but you know, how are you supposed to live when someone you love is going through? This, this is what Korean went through. Yeah. With you, this is what I'm going through. With this is what I went through with my mom. Yeah. And so a lot of us are, we can move forward, but there is this part of our life that we have to deal with healthily, and it never goes away Yeah. until you see them doing well. I used to, I used to tell my mom, Mom, she's like, it's just one drink. Right. And my mom was an alcoholic. And I said, it doesn't matter. Right. And then all I wanted in my life was for her to be doing good. Yeah. 
You know, how can I help you? Don't help me, help you. <laughs> right. That helps me. Right. You know, so, but until someone does help them, the the family bears the weight of that of that transition or that that loss in some sense and that's something that we have to deal with and there's i haven't found the answer yeah yeah and I, and i don't, and again i think that pinpoints that there's not a one it's not a cookie cutter solution right because this is not just um oh we're attacking the cancer cells in somebody who has cancer and so we have these treatments and we, we, we can definitively say, oh, it's done, right? Alcoholism addiction is a progressive fatal disease, meaning that even though I stopped drinking and using three years ago, that doesn't mean my alcoholism stopped, that my addiction has stopped. It's, it's still there. That's why my brain switches back to, to take that drink, take that pill. It'll be okay. It's going to be fine. Don't you remember how awesome you felt, right? And that's going to be there for the rest of my life. And for me, that's sometimes, especially with this, with this, what happened last week with me, it's overwhelming. And I'm like, you know, I'm 51 now, so I don't know how many years I got left on this earth anyways, but I'm thinking I'm only three years sober. That's not a very long time. Mm -hmm. It's not. I'm just learn. I'm just wading into what recovery looks like. You know, I'm knee deep in it, right? I'm not, you know, I'm not submerged as far as, and if I think about, man, the next 25, 35, 40 years, I plan on living a long time. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I plan on hitting triple digits. That's you, my, that's yeah, my the plan. Way, well, you look, uh, you look 40, 48. I would have went with 30 on that, but thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, yeah. So I plan on wanting to, you know, living into triple digits, okay? And I don't mean just like being alive, like, you know, I'm hooked up to a machine, like I want to have a life, right? But, so if I think about next 25, 30 years, and I hear um, people who say, yeah, I've been, you know, been sober 25 years now, and and I'm like, that's a long time. Yeah. Like, I'm like, I think I can do it, but I have to reset and go, what am I going to do today on my phone every day at 9 a.m. what pops up on my phone is this saying it will you know, it used to be this lord i will step into whatever you have for me today i felt like the lord gave that to me i put it on my phone and every day at 9 a.m. it pops up as a reminder lord and what does that do for me for me that's part of my program because i know i'm like okay you know what I can't deal with, with life on my terms, right? And the big book says, you know, we need to deal with life on life's terms. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's one way to approach it. And I agree with that. I feel like the Lord challenged me to deal with life on his terms because that takes the power and control, not the responsibility, not the accountability, not the actions I have to take, not what I need to do, what I'm responsible for. But it takes the situations that the Lord knows I'm going to face in the next 24 hours that I have no idea what's coming down the side street. I don't know what's coming at me. If I can deal with life through that perspective, I have a resource in my higher, in my higher power, God. Uh, I have a program that I work, that I know what to do nuts and bolts. I have friends like you who have my back, who will be there, who will, if I was to have texted you, would say, I'm coming over. Mm -hmm. I have that, right? Um, 
three years ago, I would never have imagined that I had that. Yeah. At all. Your brother has that. Whether he realizes it or not, you're, you know, and you're learning how to set boundaries. You're learning how to not fully carry the emotional and mental weight of that. You're learning to, I think it sounds like healthily distance yourself from that, setting up boundaries, setting up standards of like, love you. You always know that God loves you. Always know that. But I cannot step back into your life until you are clean and sober. So when you're in treatment, you're clear minded, you're on that path. Let's reconnect. Because you have no reason to believe that'll even work. Nobody does. I know people who've gone through, like we had people who uh, just at the place that, I've, that I went to, went, they, were, they went through it like it was their sixth time. Some had been like, yeah, I've been to 10 or 15 treatments. I'm doing this one for the third time. Mm-hmm. And you kind of go, I can kind of understand that. Um, I don't want that to be me. Right. But that's where they're at. And nothing is guaranteed. But when you get somebody that respite from the addiction, where they're clean, sober, you have that opportunity to have that connection. It's up to them to choose to work a program, to have accountability, to get the mental health uh, help that they need in order to stay sober. And it's not going to be easy. But, And I hate that everybody uses this illustration, but it's it's used widely because it's so correct. In the case of a loss of cabin pressure, masks mm-hmm. will drop down. That's right. Please adjust and secure your own mask before helping others. Everybody knows that illustration. Everybody knows the principle is what? You have to be healthy before you can help somebody else. Because if you're not and you don't have boundaries and you don't have the things that you need to give you life, you're gonna get sucked into that addict's world and you're going to suffer for it. A great book that I just got done reading, um, and it's now it's now been made into a major motion picture starring <laughs> Steve Carell, Beautiful Boy. Okay. I haven't seen the movie because I wanted to read the book first. Okay. So David Sheff, I've talked about his other book, which I think is called Addicted, where he, and again, if you want two great books, two um, uh, great resources, on the way, at least at that time, uh, I think which was like the early 2000s, uh, the addiction and recovery industry worked and the roadblocks that David Shep and his son uh, faced and his family faced, get this book. Addicted brings you through the whole opioid epidemic, the whole meth crisis, what people are doing, statistics, scientific information, medical information. I actually bought that book while I was drinking and using. I saw it on the show. Getting a head start, yeah. And I was like, yeah, and I, I think I read the intro, and I went, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This is stupid. Put it on my bookshelf. Two years later, year and a half sober, picked it up and went, this is the greatest book I've ever freaking read, right? Wow. So then I knew that he wrote Beautiful Boy. So I read, I ju- literally just got done with that like three days ago. Wow. And I'm like, you, I mean, you're crying during some of that, but you're, and you're, you're feeling the pain and, and the damage that it does. So then I, um, um, but I recommend David Chef, Addicted, I believe is the one book, and Beautiful Boy. I, I always recommend reading the book before you see the movie. Because when you read the book, you're going to feel the emotional impact and weight of what this family was going through. Uh-huh. And then I think you get a truer sense of what the movie's going to portray. And I haven't seen the movie. Uh, I'm definitely going to watch it. Dean, who walked with me through all this kind of stuff, he saw it. As soon as he saw it, he goes, bro, 
this movie, Beautiful Blonde. I'm like, oh yeah, I got the book. He's like, oh my gosh, have you seen it yet? I'm like, no. He goes, will that, I don't know if that'll, will that trigger you? I'm like, no, absolutely not. I, I thrive on seeing and hearing these stories, whether they come out great or not, right? He goes, Aaron, man, I watched that. And he goes, because of what I walked with you through, he goes, I think I understood it to a deeper level. Not to the point of where other people who have families who are addicts mm-hmm. or themselves are, but he goes, like different points of like, you know, little, like this, this, this boy's son, his younger brothers uh, and sister, like he would steal money from them. And there's money missing. And he's like, man, he goes, if I wouldn't have walked through it knowing what you had done to keep your addiction going and just seeing where you're at, he goes, I wouldn't have understood that or even thought that that was a, a red flag or whatever that it goes to that place. So anyways, I think what I'm trying to say is that with somebody who has walked through somebody, walked with somebody through addiction, that movie, he said it resonated with him and, and he had an understanding. So I would recommend that. The other book that I just bought is by David Sheff's son, which after reading this book, you'd think I would remember the name of his son. I can't remember the name of his freaking son. Are you it's kidding? It's Beautiful me? Boy. That's, That's the name son. of the, yeah, his, yeah, it's the Beautiful Boy. And his book is called Tweak. And he struggled with meth. I mean, he did all sorts of drugs, but his, his drug of choice was, um, was meth. So it's his kind of diary. I would love to read that. Through oh my that. Gosh. I'm, if you don't go buy it when I'm done, you can definitely borrow my copy and read it, right? Okay. Um, and um, what's interesting is during periods of sobriety, um, he got the book offer. During writing that book, I think, he relapsed. And then um, I think I think maybe finished the book up and stuff like that. So even throughout this whole story, there's, there's this, this, this real up life and down. Is yeah, it is. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, anyways, I recommend those books by David Sheff and his son. Just Google Tweaked and you'll find out what it is. Obviously, the last name is Sheff. So, uh, but I think, um, I, I think those are great resources, and, uh, for, for people to look at. All right. So looking at all the things that we, and again, always a pleasure to, to talk with you. It's ben. my pleasure. And we've, we've got to, we've got to do this, uh, more often or with the world going back to normal where we've been thrown off in our, um, in our, in our flow of stuff. But, um, uh, I, I want to say this. In this, this is I. Um, I post on Instagram. Uh, Son of Lars eighty eight is uh, my Instagram. Is that a handle? I don't know what you call that title. I don't. Listen, you know, is I, that I, what it, you call it, a hashtag? I, I don't even know, right? But anyway, sons of Son of Lars eighty eight. Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, Mostly on Instagram, I'm posting um, stuff about re- recovery. As I read books and things come to me or I have a thought, it helps me to process because my whole point of even that is um, I-, I want people to get out there and to-, to know about that. I've had the opportunity of connecting with people through Instagram and other places where they've reached out to me and said, hey, I'm straight, my husband or son or daughter or whatever is struggling with this, whatever. And, and I don't have all the answers. I'm not a trained clinician by any means. Although I do have, total side note, I have my application for a certified substance abuse counselor completely filled out. I'm awesome. going to pay the $25. I'm going to send it in, and uh, I'm just going to see what it's going to take for me to get certified in this because I want to learn more. Great. Uh, I'm motivated because I'm, like, I'm, I'm, I'm studying anyways on my own in the nature of having been a pastor, 
uh, you know, I was always the guy that anybody who came in drunk or high, they send them to me. And, you know, so I'm used to working with addicts and alcoholics, uh, and I am one. So, you know, there you go. Good um, but, um, going down there, what was my point? Um, totally lost my point. Oh, Instagram. Sorry. Uh, so, um, uh, ben and I were hoping that you, you guys have found, uh, hopefully, um, some hope in there. Hopefully there's some, some things that you can, especially from what Ben shared again, and thank you for sharing that because this is real life happening to us now. So just in the last month, just in the last 30 days, some pretty profound things happened to both of us. I yeah. Think. I mean, it's, and it's, it's, and it's real life. And this is stuff that I know people who are listening, um, are, are probably dealing with on a much deeper level. Maybe at the beginning of the journey, maybe it's maybe it's been 20, 30 years for them that they've that they've been in this place, but there is hope. There is hope. Okay. And we want you guys to be healthy. We want you to be safe. Get the type of treatment that you need or get their family member the treatment that you need. Do as much research as you can uh, to get it. But anyways, going back to what I was saying about Instagram, uh, one of the things I posted not too long ago, it fits in with what we talked about today is this quote, it says, um, some things you just live with because you cannot go backwards. Mm-hmm. I can't go back in time and change my choices. Um, I, it's like a sinkhole, you know, a sinkhole where, the, where the, the earth just drops out for no reason. If you try to fill in a sinkhole, it just gets deeper. I can't fill in the hole of what I've done in my past. All I can do is realize I'm no longer that person. I'm no longer in that hole that I've dug. I now have a new start every single day. I don't do every 24 hours perfectly. Um, I'm still dealing with the fallout of how I treated my wife and kids. I'm mending those relationships. I'm learning how and when to keep my mouth shut. I'm learning how to understand that the triggers and things that get me emotionally and mentally just in a relationship with Kareen or other people. I'm learning to recognize those things and not act upon them. And every time I do act upon them, I make a resolve. I do a little inventory in my head and say, okay, this is why this happened. I'm not going to do that again. And whenever I don't react to them, I count that as a victory. And it's a victory that only I can celebrate because I can't go to my wife and go, Oh my gosh, you know when you said that? I totally wanted to say this to you. It just doesn't work that way, right? right. You know, maybe in, in health sometime in the future, but it's like going, okay, I didn't react to the way that I used to. Because those emotional ways of reacting to stressors and situations in my life were the unhealthy results of things that have happened. Trauma and not dealing with stuff, not learning how to deal with life. And now I'm dealing with trauma from my past. I'm learning imperfectly how to deal with everyday life, how to deal with work, how to deal with being married, how to deal with three wonderful teenagers. And it didn't mean that to sound sarcastic if it did, because my kids are wonderful. <laughs> how, 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 to, how, to, how to navigate life uh, clear-headed, trusting in God in, in moving forward. Um, because I can't go backwards, and I have to live with the fallout with some stuff. There are relationships that I haven't fully repaired yet. And I don't know when I'm going to get the opportunity or not. Let me change that. Let me just be real. I don't know when I'm going to get the balls to create the opportunity to repair those relationships. Because that is in my court. Um, But I take it day by day. 
Well said. All right. Well, with that, thank you again for listening to Life by the Drop. Ben, as always, it's a pleasure. We'll try to do this uh, a little bit more uh, frequently. Uh, but again, if you're listening to this and you have the ability on whatever platform to subscribe to Life by the Drop, I encourage you to do that. Um, and uh, I would love to hear feedback from you guys. So again, Son of Lars 88 uh, on Instagram. You guys have a wonderful rest of your day. Ben, I will hopefully see you soon.